This Claves Online exclusive podcast is brought to you by Fast Eddie's Bonaire, powered by Ameren, Illinois. Hey, Mike Claiborne here. And by the way, thanks for listening to ClavesOnline.com. Before we go any further, coming up next, I want to introduce you to one of my friends from Ameren, Illinois. He's the vice president of gas operations. He is Eric Kozak. That's right. They're not just an electric company. They're also a gas delivery provider. Now, when you talk about smelling and locating gas and the potential for you to have a problem, what are some of the problems and some of the issues a customer could have aside from as the eventual, perhaps an explosion of some sort? So what are some of the other concerns you try and maintain? Yeah, so our number one concern is... uh, calling 811 before you dig. 811 is a national number. People will come out and they will mark the lines for you and let you know where your gas service is. So if you're putting in a basketball hoop or you're putting in a bush, call 811. Because if you don't call 811, you might have to call 911. (laughs) And we want to prevent that call. So that's the main issue is people calling 811 before you dig so you know where the pipelines are in the ground. Is there a charge for that? There's no charge for 811. In a situation where you're going to do some work, as you mentioned, how deep do you have to go before you would hit on a gas line? You know, I if you're sticking in a shovel in the ground, you should call 811. You know, we don't, uh, you know, we put our uh, pipes in, you know, 24 inches for service and 30 inches, but landscape change over time. You know, different things happen. You don't know what the previous homeowner did. He might have took a bunch of dirt off. So if you're going to stick a shovel in the ground, you need to call 811 before you dig. And I just want people to know that, you know, natural gas is a clean, reliable, safe fuel. But like any source of energy, it can be dangerous. So if you do smell gas, you know, pick up the phone and call us. We respond 24-7, seven days a week, no charge, ever. And we respond on average within 22 minutes. Over 33,000 calls a year we get, and our average response time is around 22 minutes. And I think that's pretty good. I think it's impressive. So that's that's the main thing is. And have your equipment checked out. And it's a wonderful product you can use for many, many years worry-free. We have a chance now to visit with Dr. Patrick Risch. Uh, he's a director of sports business at Washington University. And he's been around for a number of years, written a number of books. You see him on TV all the time as well. But more importantly, when it comes to the business of sport, Patrick Risch, uh, there's nobody better. And Dr. Risch, I bet you're a busy man right now because thanks to the coronavirus, uh, it has been a game changer, unlike anything we've seen when when it comes to sports or basically real life. I felt like the Adam Schefter of the coronavirus. ESPN had me on several programs last week. I had a chance uh, to be on with Mina Kimes and Will Kane and Outside the Line. So, yeah, just been really busy talking about this issue. And, Mike, it's unprecedented what's going on. Uh, certainly a lot of different areas of the industry it's it's impacted professional sports amateur sports and the youth sports market all have been impacted by this well let's start with the professional sports um you know i i think we're going to talk when it's all said and done we're going to talk about losing not billions of dollars not maybe hundreds of billions of dollars if maybe not trillions because of the trickle-down effect but when you look at the pro side, I mean, we're talking about the games, the athletes, um, these facilities that take place, and certainly the surrounding areas. Uh, we'll talk about maybe like a ballpark village where when you think about what its impact has on the team and vice versa, a lot of money being lost along the way. That's for sure, Mike. I mean, as you mentioned, NBA, baseball, Major League Soccer, the National Hockey League, 
they're all going to lose ticket revenue and related venue revenues. But there's that spin-off effect, and the supply chain just extends further than we ever realized until we see something like this that just puts everything to a halt. So you think about all the service workers that work at these arenas and stadiums, and you know they're gig workers, meaning that when there's not a gig, when there's not an event, they don't get paid. So that's why you see a lot of these teams and players stepping up, which is great to try to, you know, stem the tide a little bit. But still, uh, you know, especially when you have a cancellation of a March Madness like we had here in St. Louis, first and second round, you know, that's that's income. That's a bonus, essentially, for a lot of these service workers. So you you feel very badly for them that they're not going to see their bonus. I want to talk about the Cardinals for a minute. Um, They made a couple of announcements with respect to, being part of Major League Baseball, donating $30 million to workers. And the Cardinals also have decided to to carry the minor leaguers for a while as well because considering the fact that uh, minor leaguers haven't been paid since August of last season, uh, they've gone without a paycheck for a long, long time. And the Cardinals are trying to help bridge that gap somewhat until maybe this thing is over with. It's great to see them do that. And, and, and hopefully you hope most of the Major League Baseball teams will, will do that. It's just a question of this will be one of the most expensive years for not just Major League Baseball teams, but any of these leagues that are currently suspended operationally. You talk about you know, the, the NFL, very lucky in the sense just by circumstance of the calendar, they are avoiding a lot of the hit. Although, you know, I very well could see uh, training camp pushed back uh you know into august if things don't stabilize in the next few months but again uh i know it was a little bit controversial that they've decided to go on with their free agency signings and uh presumably still with the draft although it will certainly not be the fanfare that we expected in vegas but yeah it's it's, it's great to see major league baseball teams stepping up to try to help out their uh various whether it's staff whether it's minor league players it's good to see what about the TV deals? I mean, the NBA is in the midst of a $24 billion deal. Major League Baseball has multi-billion dollar deal, as does the NFL, and although they're not involved. And the NHL has a very healthy TV package also. How does that work for them? Because they don't make any money if they're not carrying games. So the loss to those entities is certainly going to be a big hit as well. So what are we looking at from their standpoint, money-wise? Well, there's a couple of workarounds, as I see, Mike. I mean, there's make goods always in these kinds of deals, whether it's media or whether it's advertising. So I suspect that any advertisers that have paid for time, they'll receive make goods. And as far as the media contracts themselves, you know, my sense, of course, the NBA, what is it, $2.6 billion annually that they, uh, that they receive from the various networks. My sense is that you could just extend that deal a year to make up for essentially a lost year, although that gets tricky too because it's not really an entire lost year because we have played most of the regular season, but certainly the ratings spike in the playoffs. So there will have to be some discussions and negotiations, I'm sure, which may already be ongoing, although perhaps those are a little bit premature because we just don't know the extent of what's going to be missed just yet. Dr. Patrick Rish of Washington University is our guest. And when you talk about uh, the loss on the amateur level, I look at the amateur level of not just the entry fees for the leagues and the teams and things of that nature, but when you have these so-called select teams and the travel teams, they have to stay somewhere. They have to have a hotel. They have to eat, things of that nature. What's the impact when you look at the amateur level of sports and how much that's going to hurt young people, not to mention those leagues, and somebody's not going to survive after this? 
Mike, it's the most underreported part of this whole thing, and that's why you hope that these suspensions and cancellations of events are short-lived. But when I did some research on how big is this industry, the, the youth sports market is anywhere between 20 and $24 billion in spending in 2019. And oh, by the way, that's bigger than the NFL, which was at $16 billion in 2018. So the youth sports market, where you're talking about spending by parents, hotels, restaurants, registration fees, the facility construction that takes place, and the facility facility upgrades, the rental fees, all of the cost, all the expenditures that are related to the youth sports market is bigger than the biggest sports league in this country. That just goes to show you the breadth. And you know, you think of the seasonality of these of these various youth sports. So right now we're near the end of the winter sports season. So hockey, basketball, wrestling, gymnastics, these kinds of events, youth events may get canceled. You're talking about you know, even small-town America, the cottage industry, you build these multi-use facilities so that you can attract a bunch of non-local visitors to spend money at your hotels and at your restaurants. 50, 60, 70 team, 80, 90, 100 team competitions, that's a, that's a pretty big impact. And, you know, I don't know the schedule at the Centene Ice Center, Mike, here in St. Louis. Uh, hopefully they got most of their youth tournaments in. We're near the end of the hockey season, so hopefully they, they didn't see a lot of cancellations. But, you know, you just you, you, you feel for those communities where, you know, what's coming up next? It's the spring and summer sports. It's softball. It's baseball. Some of those facilities that really rely on that youth softball and baseball tournaments, they could be in for real trouble, especially, Mike, as you mentioned. It's these people that organize these events. That, I mean, those registration fees, that's a big part of their income. You know, this this ordeal is going to end someday. And when you look at how things we're we're going to have to probably start over in a lot of regards, you know, the the stock market calls it a market correction. Uh, Things are going to change. But as you see it, what do you think is going what do you envision changing in the business of sport once we get past this ordeal? Well, certainly there's going to be a lot of happy people uh, at at the games. And and I was asked uh, earlier this week, you know, there's been a trend in declines in attendance and there's a lot of reasons for that i think the biggest reason is there's just so many other things to and the at-home experience is so good with hd television i think there'll be a short-run spike in attendance and i don't know if it'll be enough to reverse the trend uh at least for one year i don't know if it's going to be sustained because again millennials and gen z's uh like all of us are going to be impacted by what we're experiencing right now but at the end of the day I still sense that because millennials and Gen Zs like to stream and like to watch mobily and like to, you know, be up and mobile and not sit in a seat for two and a half, three hours, three and a half hours watching a sporting event. Unfortunately, those attendance numbers over the longer term are going to continue their downward trajectory. But in the short term, when we bounce back from, uh, you know, the coronavirus, we are going to see people just euphorically want to get out of the house and be with they're friends because, after all, Mike, that's a big part of sports. It's the most emotional industry you can think of. We enjoy being with each other. We, we enjoy the release. We enjoy identifying with our and connecting with people. So that's uh, going to certainly lead to a surge in attendances once, once things get back underway. You, you used the, word, the term relying on uh, a few seconds ago. Um, if there's one thing I think we've all learned that you can't rely on things, and I wonder, as a business model, 
uh, to spend it before you make it. Uh, did we all learn a lesson here? Because as you mentioned, there are a lot of people that were counting on this and they've decided to expand and do other things within their own business. And now they have nothing to show for it. But in this situation, we're all going to take a hit. But is there a lesson to be learned through all of this? Well, I think the lesson is, first of all, care more about each other. I know that sounds very kumbaya-ish, but I think that's that's very important from a financial perspective. Uh, I think it's always good to diversify your, uh, you know, diversify diversify your holdings. Uh, no one could have predicted this. So even the most conservative of people are probably kicking themselves that maybe they could have done this instead of that. Mm-hmm. But uh, on the sports front, you know, Mike, I think the one thing that comes from this is. The insurance angle, which is a very interesting angle, there could be some, you know, uh, business interruption insurance policies that could help restore some of the revenues lost, but not if they don't have a clause that specifically talks about infectious diseases. And just as a side note, I talked to a general counsel of an NBA team last week, and he mentioned that most of these uh, insurance clauses for business interruption, it's about earthquakes and hurricanes, tornadoes doing physical damage to the building not something like an infectious disease that isn't necessarily causing physical damage to the building, but it's actually, as we are seeing, it's preventing the building from receiving the normal flows of revenue. So I think that's fascinating. We'll have to see how that, that there's going to be stories about that when this is all said and done. I, I would agree with you. And I think that the, the fine print in the insurance in- industry is going to change. I think we learned a little bit after 9-11 how things change from an insurance standpoint. And I think we'll obviously see it again uh, because there won't be there won't be enough chairs when the music stops. When this is over with certain businesses and the insurance business will be one of them because it'll it'll bankrupt some people along the way, I'm sure. Dr. Patrick Rich is with us. The other thing I wanted to ask you about, we talk about players. I know the NHL is going to pay their players. The NBA is going to pay their players through the end of the regular season. And for people who don't know, players don't receive a salary during the playoffs. Uh, they share in a player's pool. So with baseball having not started yet, where do they go from here? And is that something that's still going to be negotiated? Because there are a lot of things that come into play. We talk about service time. We talk about arbitration eligible. We talk about just the overall salaries themselves that will obviously be prorated at some point. So where does that go? And when do you think they'll have some sort of resolution on paying players? Because they're going to need a paycheck, too. Well, that's a great question, and really, that's a negotiation, as you say, that's likely ongoing right now. Uh, you know, there are so many logistical issues that these leagues are trying to deliberate at this point. That I don't know if, if and certainly the players, that's front and center. Um, you know, making sure games can be played, a certain number of games, how many games must be played so we can have a season. Uh, my sense is those negotiations with the players' association are, are ongoing. You know, um, with this situation, when it's over, the baseball teams are going to have to reconvene and have another spring training. So for the Arizonas and the Floridas of the world who really rely on spring training revenue, maybe they get a second chance at this, even though it may be two weeks, maybe. Uh, Will that help the economy at all? Or will people be so set in their ways they'll move on from that because they've already scheduled that downtime or that vacation time already and we're disappointed by the, the, the spring training being cut short. It's a great question that you raised, Mike, because if spring training doesn't start until, let's say, early June, are we going to Florida and Arizona for spring training? <laughs> I don't think that's where anybody wants to be that time of year. It's going to be scalding hot. So then it 
the question is, are you going to play spring training in major league ballparks, which I guess you could, and it'd be a way to try to recoup some uh, revenues. And, and quite frankly, people are, if, if we're outside able to attend uh, sporting events at that point, people probably would, would turn out in droves just to be able to be together and, and watch their team. But uh, boy, that's just another angle of it. I sure don't see them going down to, to Florida and Arizona in June to play that tra- uh, spring training games. Yeah, you know, I, I think the only solution in that on that front would be uh, you'd have a team locally or regionally like a Kansas City or Chicago, and maybe you play those teams for a three-game series here, and then you go up there and play them for three, so you get six games in, and then you're ready to go. Uh, because I think that that's a lot easier than having uh, teams come in from elsewhere compared to being in Florida or Arizona where everybody's closer to you. So, uh, again, a, a lot of things they're going to have to throw on the board and see what's going to stick because this is a, a process that uh, we've never been through, and it's going to be something I guess we'll all have to write the book about and learn from when it's all said and done. Who knows what could happen, Mike? The NBA Interestingly enough, you know, they have this G League that they've done for a long time during the summers where they've, they've got the, uh, you know, basically just the summer league guys are playing, getting ready to kind of graduate up to the, the NBA ranks, rookies trying to, you know, again, try to showcase their skills and get ready for the league. Who knows if they turn Vegas into a place where you conduct your NBA finals uh, and your NBA playoffs this year? I really don't know. Uh, there are so many unknowns right now. Uh, same with hockey. Could they, you know, just simply pick a couple of, of, of arenas in certain markets and, and play a condensed, you know, playoff, uh, Stanley Cup playoffs there? I, you know, who knows? It's, it's so wide open right now. I'm sure they're exhausting every single possibility. I believe most owners would prefer the standard playoff format that we've had forever. But if we're not starting until July 1st, is that even feasible because of all these other events that you have to schedule in your buildings. I mean, that's, well, that's one of the biggest barriers right now. I, I think the one thing that gets them off the hook, um, NBA and the NHL are more uh, sport driven or, you know, they're centralized where they have NHL arenas just play hockey, NBA arenas just play basketball. So the only thing they would compete against would be concerts, and that schedule is going to obviously be changed again as well. So you might be able to pull it off. If you say – we're going to start this thing on Memorial Day. I'm sorry, on uh, on June 30th and run through the month of July. You might be able to pull it off. You just won't have as many off days in between, but you might be able to pull it off. But that that's something that is for people who are making a lot more money than you and I are trying to figure this out. <laughs> that's right. That's final, right. final question for Dr. Patrick Risch of Washington University. He's the director of sports business. Uh, what's the one thing we should all pay attention to when this is all said and done, because there's some things that are obviously going to slip through the cracks that we haven't thought a great deal about. You mentioned the amateur sports angle, uh, but what else should we start to pay attention to or think about as this thing starts to wind down and we get back to the business of sport? Well, I just wonder how it's going to impact not only this year, but also next year. And I'm also curious to see how quickly many of us who are going to be, you know, psychologically, emotionally scarred perhaps from what's happened and, Obviously, we're all going to be much more uh, on guard with respect to, you know, hygiene and being close to each other and, and large spaces. How is that going to impact our willingness to, you know, go to events? I think that there's going to be a spike initially. I think there's other reasons why we'll eventually come back down. But depending upon the severity of this, I, I just there is a scenario where even when things are 
where we're in the clear, there may be a reluctance for some people to you know kind of return. Just like some of us that are being beat up financially right now in the stocks, uh, when things return back to to uh, calmer shores, are we going to be reticent to make certain moves because we were recently burned by what's just happened? So uh, that's one of the things that I'm looking at. And, uh, you know, again, I, I, I also would like to see how the teams, how the leagues will continue to try to support those service workers who are for sure going to be the most severely economically impacted uh Comparatively speaking, in terms of just day-to-day, paycheck-to-paycheck, how are the teams and leagues going to help support those people? That would be interesting to see moving forward. I used the word trillion at the outset of this interview. Could we reach that amount of money lost when you think about the trickle-down effect from the pros to the amateurs to whomever, bars, businesses, the whole nine yards? Could could we be in the trillion-dollar range? I don't know if we'd be in the trillion-dollar range, Mike, but I would say that it's extremely likely already that if this is going to be a prolonged three, four month uh, uh, suspension and cancellation of events, that we are looking at a multi-billion dollar loss when you look at the entire scope of spending, not only at pro college and youth sporting events, but all the supplier chain companies tied to those industries. Dr. Patrick Risch, Washington University, as always, we appreciate the time. I think the two words I'll give you in, for advice, stay tuned, because we got a lot more going on with this thing. And uh, and when it's all said and done, we'll all have to take a deep breath and, and, and congratulate ourselves on being able to survive this and learn a very valuable lesson. Thank you, Mike. Hi, this is Mike Claiborne, and thanks for listening to ClavesOnline.com. And before we go any further, I'd like for you to take a listen to one of my friends from Ameren, Illinois. He's their vice president of gas operations, Eric Kozak. <laughs> That's right, I said gas operations because they're more than just an electric company. When you think about electricity and natural gas, how many natural gas customers do you have in the state? 816,000 gas customers in the state of Illinois that we serve. That's so, a big number. It is. It's a it's a big number and big responsibility. You know, we don't take that lightly, and uh, you know, it's a uh, it's a privilege to serve the customers in the state of Illinois, and, our, and me and my coworkers, you know, we take that very seriously. So if you think about the state of Illinois, anything but pretty much Chicago and the Chicago suburbs is served by Ameren, Illinois. And so our service territory is actually uh, 44,000 square miles. It's bigger than the state of Indiana. That's a lot of coverage, and so when you think about coverage and we think about sources of energy, most people think of Ameren, Illinois for electricity, but natural gas is a major player in what you do. Yes, it is, uh, Mike. You know, natural gas, we, you know, like you said, Ameren, a lot of people think electricity, but Ameren, Illinois is made up of three companies that all had natural gas before, and those combined companies are a top 25 gas utility in the nation. We have over 18,000 miles of pipeline throughout the state, 12 uh, storage fields, and uh, 1,250 miles of transmission lines that serve our customers. That, that's a lot of property and a lot of coverage. So give me some of the uses for natural gas and some of the things it's being used for other than maybe being on a gas grill. Yeah, so I, you know, the easiest way for me to describe that is, uh, you know, I built a house about 10, 12 years ago. So I have a gas furnace. I have a, it heats my home, obviously. I have a gas water heater. I have a natural gas dryer. I have a gas stove for cooking my food and oven. I also have a gas uh, fireplace, which also serves as a little furnace for my living room. 
and I have a gas grill, as you mentioned, for cooking my food. So I got six appliances in my house that run on natural gas. So you're covered with gas, or in this case, cooking with gas. Yeah, I'm cooking with, with gas, right.